Please be seated. We're going to read from God's Word now, uh, reading from the Gospel of, of John this morning, um, chapter 1, verse 1 down to verse 14, and it's on page 886 of the Pew Bible, and it'll be on the screens before you as well. You might find it helpful to have the, the Bible open if you, if you want, and that's on page 886 of the Pew Bible, and we're reading from John chapter 1, verses 1 down to verse 14, and we're thinking this morning about the incarnation, we've been th- looking at Christmas um, possible, that there's parts of the Christmas story that many might think are too far stretched or um, too hard to, to believe, but um, this we, we've hopefully seen over the last few weeks that actually not only are these things possible, but they they need to happen for the Christmas story to be true. Without these crucial things, we don't have a Christmas story. And this morning, we're thinking about the incarnation, about God becoming flesh. So, John 1, verse 1 to verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. We are thinking this morning about the incarnation, which again is a hugely crucial part of the Christmas story. But not just of the Christmas story, but of the gospel as a, as a whole. The incarnation is a deep mystery. It's one of these parts of the Christian faith that that many struggle with, that many find too hard to believe. This deep mystery that we have that God became flesh. That's what the incarnation means, that God became flesh. John begins his gospel very different to how the other gospel writers um, start theirs. They um, Two of them begin by looking at the, the, the birth of, of Jesus and, and Jesus coming into the world. There's another one that looks at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. But here John does something a wee bit different. He kind of takes a step back from Jesus' earthly life and he shows us something really crucial within theology. These are really hard verses to, to wrestle with. And 25, 30 minutes of a sermon will never really do them justice, but hopefully we can begin to scratch the surface to try and fathom something of what John is teaching us here. And what John is showing us is that this baby that we sing of, that we celebrate being born at this time of year, that he has always been. That is really what John is showing us, that this baby we celebrate, that he has always been. That's what the, 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 the Christmas carol, that line we sing, begotten, not created. That, that his beginning wasn't when he was born. 
He wasn't created, but he was begotten. And that phrase, begotten, not created, is grappling with what John is teaching us within the beginning of his gospel here. That Jesus wasn't created, that he was begotten. And for us to grasp the genesis of the Christmas story, for us to grasp the beginning of the Christmas story, we need to grapple with what John is saying here. And what he is showing us is that the Christmas story didn't start in Bethlehem. That is what he's showing us. John starts his gospel in a similar way to how Genesis begins. There's real parallels between John's opening verses and the opening verses of the Bible as a whole in Genesis. We read in Genesis that in the beginning, so John begins as well, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. John begins his gospel with one of the most elevated statements and declarations about Jesus within the whole of the New Testament. And he goes on to give this series of verses that are so rich and deep of theology. And he's speaking here, and it's hard in the English language because our language is so limited. He's speaking here about the Word. And the word used for word, I'm already probably starting to lose some of you, the word that John uses for word is logos. And the way that that's translated is word, or another way to understand that is the spoken word. It's another way to understand that in the Greek, spoken word. As Christians, friends, we worship one God. We worship one God. That is the call of the Bible. That God alone is the one we worship. But God is Trinity. He is three in one. That doesn't mean we worship three gods. We worship one God. But he is three persons. He is Father. He is Son. And he is Holy Spirit. All equally God. Not parts, but persons. One God who is three in one. And again, if we think of the beginning of, of the world, we see the Trinity active. We see God present. In the beginning was God. And then he speaks. And God said, let there be light. We also read of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. So there already we see the triune God three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But what do we read about God in Genesis? What does he do? Does he think the world into being? Does he wish the world into being? No. He speaks it. God said, let there be. He spoke it. That's why we read in John chapter 1 verse 3, that all things were made through him. Who is him? Who is the him that John is speaking about? This isn't speaking about some sort of abstract concept. John is speaking about a person here. Through him, all things were made. And without him, there was nothing made. It's another way of translating that. The ESV can be a bit clumsy sometimes with the English language. 
when we read it because it's a wee bit different from how we would speak it. Because it goes on and says, and not anything made that was made, really that everything was made through him. Without him, there would have been no creation. In creation, that is why we have in the Genesis, why it continues to say, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said. What is Genesis showing us? It is showing us the activity of the second person of the Trinity. All things were made through him. Why? Because John tells us he is the word. He is the word. That's why God didn't think the world into being. He spoke it. Why? Because we see the activity of the second person of the Trinity within that. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And another way, uh, uh, another name that, that, that John gives the second person of the Trinity is the Word. That's why we read in Revelation that he, he being Jesus, is clothed in a robe dripped in blood. And the name by which he is known is the Word of God. And what we need to grasp is that when John speaks about the Word, he is speaking about a person. He is speaking about the second person of the Trinity. He is speaking about Jesus here. But what we see within the Christmas story is that Jesus is given a name. And that name is Jesus. So the Word and Jesus are the same person. He's the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. John is speaking about a person here. Notice as well that the capital letter at the beginning of word. Why? Because it's speaking about a person. This is a name. In Hebrew, thought logos, this term for word is personal. And John points to the logos, that he is a he, he's not an it. It's not an it. It's not an abstract concept. This is speaking about a person at the beginning of John's gospel. And he's speaking about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. It's clear that when John is writing, he's speaking about a person. We can, we can gather that because he shows us the contrast between the, the, the person being the Word and then this other person, this other man sent from God who is, who's John. There's a contrast there. This, this is speaking about two different people. We have Jesus and we have John the Baptist. We see this connection between Jesus being the word that John gives us. Friends, that's why when we read the passages of Scripture, that's why when we read the Bible, which is the word of, of God, when we read it, what happens? Well, actually, as a follower of Jesus, it doesn't just give us more information. We actually fall more in love with Jesus, don't we? We fall more in love with him. It's not that just we learn more, but actually our heart is drawn closer to him. Because he's the word made flesh. And as we glean the passages of Scripture more and more, what we are drawn to is not an idea, not a concept, not a moral framework or moral compass, but a person. And his name is Jesus. And as we read John 1, what we see is that Jesus didn't begin in Bethlehem. 
He's given a name in Bethlehem, a name that he'd never been called Jesus before. But he's given a name. But he didn't begin there. Why? Because he's not created. He is the second person of the Trinity, and he is eternal. He is God. So John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 1, what we have, friends, are three basic affirmations that John gives us, which are crucial to the Christian faith. Firstly, we see eternity present for the Word. And this is this notion, this understanding that Jesus wasn't created, he was begotten. Why? Because he was eternal. He has always been. When we read in the beginning, it says like, when it's in the beginning was the Word, what that's saying is even before time began, the Word was present. That, that's what that means. Even before the foundations of the world, even before God spoke the world into being, the Word was. I remember in RE in high school, um, it was the only subject I got an A in because, and again, this, I'm teaching you a lot about myself today. My uh, teacher in, second, in sixth year bet me 10 pounds. It's the only bet I've ever made. Uh, bet me 10 pounds that I couldn't get an A, and I got an A, and he gave me the tenor. What a legend. I wish my other teachers had done that. I might have done better in school. Anyway, um, don't gamble. Um, but in RE in high school, what... what I remember learning was when we looked at creation and the, the, the scientific background and, you know, faith versus science and all these things, we always ended up speaking about this subject, which was the uncaused cause. The uncaused cause. There has to be something, the world says, that has set everything in motion. And, and science, science can't give us what that something is. Because science looks at it from a different perspective. Science looks at the mechanics and the, uh, and the, the, the why. Or sorry, the, the how. How did things happen? And the, the way they try and do that is that they, through looking at how through science, is they, they, they've given us these different frameworks about the Big Bang or, or the evolutionary process. And, uh, but even if those things were true, it still can't get back to the very beginning. There's still something that this science can't answer. There has to be something that sets the, the whole thing into motion, this uncaused cause. But for us, as people of faith, and personally I believe in what the Bible says, and, and that's how the world came into being, but, but, but we can answer the why and the who. Who the uncaused cause is. Why he made it. Science can't give us answers for that. And the uncaused cause, the one that set everything in motion, is the one who has always been the eternal God, the creator. In the beginning was the Word. The Word has no beginning and the Word has no end. He has always been. He is eternal. John shows us as well, not just the eternal um, aspect and affirmation, but the, the unity within the Godhead, three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Word was with God. We see an aspect and an insight into the perfect relationship that the Trinity has always enjoyed from all eternity. We see his divinity as well. The word was God, John says. 
And this statement is a statement about the divinity of Christ, that Christ, that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, that he is God. He is eternal. He enjoys perfect unity within the Godhead. And he is divine. He is God. And what John is showing us is that Jesus always existed. The Word has always been. He had no beginning. He has always been. He is eternal. And even though we see the angel coming to Mary and saying to Mary, you're going to have a son, and we see that the angel also reveals that you will call his name Jesus, that at that moment, that wasn't the creation of Jesus, that he's always been. He is the eternal God. In the beginning was the Word. Before time began, before the creation of the world, the Word always was. And then we jump down to verse 14. So we've ascertained that the Word is God, that he is the one who has always been. He's the second person of the Trinity. He has always been. And in verse 14, we have this incredible verse. And the word became flesh. And it goes on to say, And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh. And friends, in this verse, what we have is the whole of the Christmas story condensed into a few words. That the word became flesh. And we could take that a step further and we could say that that word for became, we have the whole Christmas story loaded in became. He became flesh. John has just told us about the one who is above creation. He wasn't created. He is the creator. Through him, all things were made. But now he tells us here, in addition to this, that he became flesh. Just, I want you to stop and just try and fathom that for a second. That the one whom all things were created through, the word, that he became flesh. That the God who's above all creation, who was superior in every way, who stood above it all in glory and in splendor and in majesty, the one who just merely had to speak and lights and galaxies and stars and constellations were formed. The one who has given us the northern lights, the one who's given us the waterfalls in this world and the shooting stars we see in the sky and the lilies of the field, the one whom all these things were created through, that he became flesh. And what that means is that he became part of his creation story. That he stepped down from the glory, the majesty, the splendor of heaven, and he stepped down into this world. That is remarkable. He became flesh. 
He enters into his creation. He doesn't stop being the Word, though. The second person of the Trinity, the Eternal One, the Eternal Logos, the Eternal Word, the Eternal Son, the Eternal God. He steps down into his creation and he becomes human. Truly human. Fully human. And in theology, we call that the incarnation, which means simply God incorporated in flesh. God became flesh. He took on flesh. And I love Christmas carols. I know there's some people that don't like them too much, but I I love them simply because of the richness of theology we have within them. Veiled in flesh. He took on flesh. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. That's speaking about the incarnation. That's speaking about John 1 verse 14. The Word became flesh. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. This is who the Creator is. That's who the Word is. He's the Creator, the one whom all things are made through. He takes on flesh. He becomes part of His creation story. The one who has always been and who is fully God, who is eternal, divine, and who had always enjoyed the perfect unity within the Godhead. That's why we read elsewhere in the Scriptures that He didn't see equality with God, something to be grasped. But he humbled himself. And he became a man. He took on flesh. Why? Why would he do that? Because his love for his creation was so much. It was so deep. It was so wide. And he loved you so much. And you'll never be, guess what? He took on flesh for you. He left the glory of heaven and stepped down into this broken and dark and sinful and chaotic world. And he took on flesh. And he knew pain for the first time in his life. And he knew what it was to grieve. And he knew what it was to mourn. And he knew what it was to cry. And he knew it was to be betrayed and to feel alone and to be hungry, to be thirsty. He knew what it was to bleed. Why? Because he loves you. He took on flesh for you so he could wrap you in his glory. That's the gospel, friends. You see, He wraps himself in human flesh so that one day for all eternity you could know the perfect eternal embrace of the Father and he'd never let you go. That's the gospel. That's what it means for him taking on flesh. And John isn't interested in how this happened. He's given us this theological overview 
We saw last week how he takes on flesh. We see last week through his conception, the way he's conceived through the activity of the Holy Spirit within the Virgin Mary. But John isn't interested in that. He's interested in the consequences of this. So what, what happens when Jesus took on flesh? He made his dwelling with us. He dwelt among us. I love, I love this word, dwelt. It's literally translated as he pitched up a tent beside us. <laughs> he pitched up a tent beside you. And after being at magnitude... <laughs> That takes on a whole new meaning for me. Camping with teenagers for a long time. But he pitched up a tent beside you. He dwelt among us. And this is meant to bring the image of the tabernacle within the Old Testament where we see God's presence come and it, and it, it, it resided and it, it, it filled this tabernacle, this tent that, that they would carry with them so that God could be with his people. That, that's the image that this is meant to conjure up for us. To put it another way, the presence of God was localized in Jesus, the incarnate word. Another consequence is that we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the Father. And again, this is an allusion to the Old Testament of God's presence being with his people. God became flesh. And it's because of this. It's because of John 1, 14, that we can call him Emmanuel. God with us. Not just God for us, or God watching over us, but God with us. Because he's dwelt among us. And the more I think about this, the more obvious it becomes for me. How does God reveal himself to us in the Old Testament? How does God reveal himself to us in the Old Testament? Through speech, through, through words, through, through his spoken word. So God reveals himself to us in the Old Testament through his powerful self-expression given through his law and his prophets. So it shouldn't be surprising that he continually communicates to us through the word but this time it's the word made flesh that's why jesus said i came not to abolish the law to but fulfill it that's why we read that in jesus we have the yes and the amen of god's promises that's who jesus is he is the yes and amen of the promises of god the spoken law and the spoken promises of course they are fulfilled by the one john gives this name to the word made flesh Paul says in Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You want to see what God is like? Look at Jesus. He's shown you through his life. And this is a crucial theological belief. It isn't symbolism. It isn't metaphorical. It's not poetic. It is a theological fact that we must ascribe to, for without it we're lost. It is crucial for us that, that God became flesh. He, Jesus wasn't just some guy that God saw one day, you know, riding a camel or a donkey or lying in a manger and thought, you know what, I'll, I'll choose him. He'll, he'll do. It's not like an Avengers movie where we see Spider-Man, Peter Parker being bit by a spider and all of a sudden he then develops these powers that he has. That's not what Jesus is like. He was always God. And as Becca told us this morning, he came to redeem us. So this baby born, he isn't just any mere human being. 
Look at all that surrounds his birth, the prophetic words that we've thought about, the angelic visitations and declarations, the miraculousness of his conception. Look at who he is. He is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the Word made flesh. He is fully God. And we begin to wrap up this morning. And I I want you to, to know this. And maybe you already know it. And if you do, I want you to be reminded. And maybe you've never thought about it this way before. But every part of the Christmas story was carefully planned in the sovereignty of God. Every single detail of the Christmas story was written in history before it even happened. Such was the importance of your redemption that God left no stone unturned. He planned the whole thing out so that you could be saved. God was planning your salvation before the world even began. The location, the time, the place, the method, the mechanics, the prophetic words, the declarations. That's when we read that Jesus was crucified before the foundations of the world. He was already going to come. Because he's begotten, not created. It is crucial that we hold on to that. Why? for our salvation. He had to be fully man. Why? Because it was us that owed a debt. But at the same time, he had to be fully God. Why? Because it was only God that could pay that debt. And in Christ, in Jesus, with him stepping into creation, the word taking on flesh, he becomes our mediator. He bridges the gap between mankind and God. He is the one mediator. Friends, God lowers himself in the person of Jesus to gather us and redeem us to himself. He made his dwelling among us. He pitched up a tent near us. Why? Because he is Emmanuel. Amen.